You are listening to Future Net Zero, a platform to help businesses and the wider community improve our lives and our planet by achieving net zero. In this episode, Future Net Zero founder Sumit Bose speaks to Saul Ali, Director of Safety, Strategy and Support Services for UK Power Networks. In their conversation, they discuss COVID-19, business resilience, and the challenges of moving a distribution systems operator to net zero, as well as the possible future demands on our networks. So thanks for joining me on Future Net Zero in a very unusual style using uh, the computers because of lockdown. But um, let's just start where we are, which is obviously the coronavirus, a big challenge for every company. But for a network company like yourselves, what are the particular challenges you see in this time? Hi, Sumit. So in terms of uh, coronavirus, I think the key priorities for us is about keeping the lights on, providing that essential service uh, and keeping our employees and customers safe. So what we've got to try and do is for those teams that can work from home and work remotely to be able to enable them to do that without seeing a degradation in service. Because as more and more uh, of our communities are working from home, you know, power cuts, although they are rare, have a more acute impact. And so we need to make sure that we can respond doubly fast uh, and continue to support uh, our customers in, in this time of need. So that's the key priority. And then for operational staff, it's about making sure they've got the right uh, equipment, uh, the right uh, coveralls, the right safety guidance, uh, so that if they do need to enter customers' pr uh, premises to be able to get the lights back on, that they can do so safely and with confidence. So that's basically what we're doing at this time. Uh, to make sure that we keep the lights on and keep the energy flowing. I bet that never ever came up, did it, in scenario planning that you, or maybe it did, I don't know, like pandemics. I mean, have you ever thought of something like this ever happening and built it into the resilience plan? Uh, I mean, look, as an organisation that provides an essential service, we think about business continuity uh, and we're paranoid about it. And although you have a pandemic plan and what you would do, nothing is quite like enacting it in reality mm. so i think what we are looking to do and what we are doing actually is to make sure that we adapt our approach daily uh, if not hourly by continuing to engage with staff so that if there are any issues that we haven't thought about that those get surfaced up really quickly uh, and addressed uh, and to give you an idea of what that means mm. you know this is not being just managed at a local level our ceo holds a daily yam jam right where anyone in the organization uh, can log in and ask a question uh, and we had over 600 employees on the first time we did that uh, last week so it's incredible and what that's allowing us to do is to identify any issues that may require an organizational wide response to so i think that's really good and, and i would encourage other organizations to do the same if they're not doing that. well look, let's put where we are with this and let's all hope that obviously we get through this as soon as we can but the long-term reality is post-coronavirus the world has, in a way, had a weird experiment here about zero carbon, net zero, because we've seen in places like China, the air getting clearer. The, the rivers of Venice have got fish coming back. Here in London, the air has got cleaner because of lockdown. In the wider situation of when we get back to normality, what do you see the biggest issues about the net zero challenge for a network like yourselves? Okay. I mean, look, I would say we, as the United Kingdom, have a legislative commitment to achieve net zero by 2050. So it's yeah. not optional. It's not if we feel like it. It needs to be achieved, right? Uh, and so I think network companies have uh, two key roles to play. The first role is about how network companies transform their own operations 
to be net zero compliant. Uh, and the second role is about how they can provide uh, or facilitate the wider decarbonisation of the economy. So it's very kind of two, two roles there. Mm. So on the first one, uh, it's about understanding what are the carbon emissions from your own operations and how can you deploy new technologies, new techniques to uh, ensure that you are walking the walk um, and delivering on your own carbon reductions. So in the case of UK Power Networks, we have over 60,000 tonnes of CO2 emitted uh, uh, per annum. That's wow. mainly uh, operational uh, vehicles and cars, diesel cars. It's mainly generators, which we use to provide power to customers in the event of a power cut. It's things like SF6 gases. So what we are doing is basically we're taking uh, an approach working with the Carbon Trust, uh, which uses the science-based uh, targets initiative to come up with a pathway to 2050. And then what we're doing is we're chunking that up into five-year carbon plans, which align to our regulatory settlement. So we should be able to go to our stakeholders, our customers, our communities, and be able to say, look, this is what UK Power Networks needs to do to reduce its carbon footprint, and this is what the costs are. And to make sure that there's a broad agreement and acceptance of those costs, and then those are put forward to our regulator, Ofgem, effectively for approval in five-year cycles. So we'll take a long-term view to 2050, but we'll mm -hmm. have practical and, tar and clear targets that we can deliver within five-year periods. I understand that, and it makes sense to me in a lot of ways, but do you think that the, the, the five-year period is a relevant one? Because the funny thing is, you could plan for five years, but we didn't even know what technologies we were having five years ago that we've got now, and you could suddenly find a new solution comes up. You might think, oh, that could really radically shift my, my carbon profile. So. In terms of a business like yourselves, where obviously there's this, the framework of what we have, the wires and the pipes and all of that sort of stuff, but as you say, your own getting out there with vehicles, do you see that technology will drive things in a fast way and you'll need to adapt to adjust quicker? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uncertainty is sort of the new normal nowadays, right? Uh, yeah. And so I mean, if you just look at past history, when we put our um, most recent plan together back in 2013, we could never have envisaged the scale of decarbonisation that's occurred in the power sector. You know, mm. look at the amount of distributed generation, renewable distributed generation that is connected on the distribution networks. It's incredible. And as a result of that, that's enabled us to exceed our carbon reduction targets in the current regulatory period. Right? We've, we've reduced our carbon by over, 20, 20, over 22% period to date, right? halfway through. And our current, our target in our plan was 15%. Mm. So we're already overachieving. And that's as a result of seismic shifts in power generation, right? which now using solar technologies, renewable technologies that are becoming much more cost effective. Right? So I, I take your point that we have to be flexible and be able to adapt as the circumstances change around us. Kind of our philosophy, our approach on this is that rather than make grandiose statements that that, that has no backing, no substance behind it, we think, based on the feedback we've had from our stakeholders and our customers, is that we should make commitments that have substance behind them. So mm -hmm. whilst we have an ambition to achieve net zero by 2050, there's a requirement to do so, we will set very tangible targets based on assumptions of the technologies as we know them today. And if we can over-deliver, because technology costs you know, fall faster, yeah. or yeah. new technologies come out, for example, electric vans with greater range come out faster than we anticipate, we will respond. Because ultimately, we want to try and beat those targets. But it's got to have substance. That's the kind of approach that we're taking.
if you look at what you're you're saying there, so for example, obviously your fleet, people who live in the southeast will probably recognise your van. They've seen them around, and I assume the overwhelming number are are diesel. To transform them into electric electric vans, you've not got to just put in the the investment there, but you've got to look at the infrastructure to do that. Mm-hmm. So how do you work out what makes the priority? Are you are you saying right stage one? I'm going to electrify. 5% of my fleet, 10% of my fleet, I'm going to do all of it, or then I'm going to look at my buildings. What, can you take me through some of the specifics you're, you're trying to do in how yeah. you, you take these incremental steps? So, so I think what we do is we take our carbon uh, emissions, we then segment them and say, let's look at each class of emission. So right. operational vehicles would be one, as an example. We then say, right, what technologies are available in the marketplace? What vehicles are available in the marketplace that allow us to undertake the range that needs to be undertaken, right? And what we're finding is that the supply chain currently of those vehicles is heavily restricted. So there are kind of small vans, light vans that are available, uh, but the range is heavily restricted and it becomes even lower in winter months. So we're starting to do trials firstly to see what is the reality of using these vehicles that are available and can we still keep the lights on and provide the core service. Um, So we're kind of continuing with a watching brief on that. As new vehicles become available, as a, what we will do is we'll replace legacy vehicles with the newer vehicles, ideally electric vehicles. But if yeah. they're not available, we'll go maybe to transition state, which may be ultra low emission uh, vehicles, which could be oh. hybrid. Yeah. And so are you putting the, in structure yourself, for like charging points for your offices and your right. depots and things like that? That's right. We've got a program of rolling out charge points in our car parks to encourage staff uh, to basically make the switch um, on our car schemes. We're going to be providing much greater uh, variety and range uh, of electric vehicles as they become available. So this is changing really rapidly. And I think what we're seeing is our staff actually want to make the switch to electric vehicles sooner than we had even anticipated, just because that they are now becoming more widespread and more available and more affordable. So we need to make sure that we, we continue to provide the infrastructure for them to be able to charge uh, at work in car parks uh, but also secondly that if you know operational vehicles become available faster mm-hmm. uh, and it makes sense because I think you need to look at the business case in the round here as well because every pound we spend is customers money and therefore what we're trying to do is to look at the business case that says well what is the overall whole life cost because certain electric vans may be um, more expensive to acquire up front but their run costs are lower because they've got less movable parts there's no fuel costs and then if you take the price of carbon and what that is in, what, what that could actually uh, overlay in terms of cost to society, the businesses, I think, stacks up. So this, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to look at this in a more holistic way um, and in a way that we can explain and justify to the communities that we're here to serve. Your, your problem is that obviously as a, a legacy energy company, you probably got buildings that were built maybe even 100 years ago, definitely the last 50, 60 years. You know, how do you go about making a big sort of depot energy efficient how do you go about taking a transformer and making that clearer can you talk me through some of the challenges you've got specifically because you know well, you've got big bits of kit haven't you yeah so there are kind of two aspects there one that uh, you've spoke you've spoken about in terms of our, our offices and our buildings and yes i guess you could take it from one perspective which is yes it's a challenge it's difficult i tend to think of it more as kind of opportunities right because this is not an optional transition right this is a mandatory transition and therefore we need to kind of bring solutions to the problems here so what we're taking is we've looked at each of our sites 
the main sites and we've said, okay, what are the kind of hierarchy of solutions that we can apply? So from LED lighting to the HVAC system, to uh, insulation, both in the roof and in and for the windows, uh, and how can we put kind of new technology in terms of switching lights off when people aren't in there, and making use of sensors that have come down in price rapidly over the last few years. So, with our property team and our facilities team, we're taking a structured approach, and as part of the property renewal budget, we're just basically targeting that budget to make uh, our buildings more efficient, and we're starting to see. The fruits of some of the, that investment, you know, come in place. Hence, why, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, our carbon reduction of our own operations has come down by over twenty percent. It's because we're applying things like that. What we're then doing is saying, well, that's carbon, but actually, there's a wider sustainability issue here. What about water usage, right? Mm -hmm. What about the sustainability of the surround, I mean, the biodiversity of the surrounding land, uh, you know, uh, in our substations, around our substations. So we've set specific targets on improving the biodiversity and reducing water use, because that's just as important as carbon. One of the big issues that many companies face, and you know, in, in Future Net Zero we've been discussing this, is the cost of embedded carbon. Yeah, the carbon that's already there. So in the, the, the things we use, the concrete, the, the, the metal, the transformers you have, the oil that's in all those things, like the generators you talked about. Obviously, some of those things, there probably isn't the technology to change them right now. What are you trying to do about your kind of, you know, big major embedded carbon issues in terms of the infrastructure that you need to make, make, make things work? That's a great question, because that's something that we're, we're grappling with at the moment. And, you know, working with organizations like the Carbon Trust, the approach that we're taking is we're looking at our emissions in terms of scope one, scope two, scope three. Right. Scope three is typically the hardest to attack, because that is the type of emissions you're, you're describing here, which is embedded. So what we're saying is, let's get uh, our plans in place, let's get them funded, let's get them started to deliver, to build confidence on scope one, one and two, and then work with our supply chain work with the wider ecosystem of partners to come up with some prioritization on what we do uh, in some of those harder to reach, kind of harder to tackle scope three emissions. But we should not use that as an excuse not to do something now because there are practical steps that we are taking and can continue to take on both scope one and scope two. So very much, you know, the approach that we're taking at UKPN is it's got to be practical, it's got to be target driven, we've got to demonstrate results, right? And if we can do that, you start to build a momentum Right. Yeah. a momentum for change and I've seen that you know three years ago when I you know when I first joined UK Power Networks in fact five years ago now when we used to go out and talk to operational teams every fortnight we'd have mm -hmm. a group of about 60 to 100 uh, teams and we'll have an open session no agenda what's on their minds what can we do to improve their experience right the discussion used to always focus on things like their IT their vans um, their their kit last year for the first time, we started to hear discussions about, well, what are we doing around plastics? What are mm. we doing around uh, our diesel fleet? What are we doing around facilities? Yeah, they're asking you. There's a, they're asking us. And it's like, you know, that's a change. That's a change that we've seen just in this last year, right? Which is fantastic because through that kind of bottom-up change, we're putting in place new, uh, new processes around the reusing plastics uh, in terms of uh, in replacing you know, oil-based bitumen in uh, road resurfacing. We are, we've got a, a plastics action plan, which is driven bottom up, which is to say, well, what are the kind of bits of equipment that we buy where there's plastic in plastic in plastic, like the joint bags? How can we go away and start to work with, with their manufacturers to remove that? It's not needed. And that's been driven bottom up from employees that are taking a stake in this. And we as management, our job is to support them and facilitate and remove the barriers to do so.
I'm going to move on to the future of, of London in a moment, but in terms of your supply chain, mm -hmm. how do you work with them? Because one of the things that we're trying to do with FNZ is to encourage, you know, big companies like yours who are partners, and thank you for doing that, to, to lead. So do you feel um, a desire, a necessity to tell your supply chain, guys, we need you to step up as well? Yeah, and I don't think it's a tell. It's more about collaboration here. The vast majority of organizations and the senior leaders that I, just, you know, I talk to on a regular basis, they get it. They absolutely get that this is an issue uh, that needs to be addressed. It's, it's a mandatory problem. It's not optional. And therefore, I don't think there's uh, a question of, of will here. It's just a question of working through the practicalities and how we do it. And so, therefore, there are some practical steps that we've taken. So, for example, our procurement standards you know, are being uh, you know, updated on an ongoing basis. As we go to procure new items, we think about embedded carbon and we think about the sustainability practices of mm -hmm. the organizations that we're going to procure from. That's a practical step we can take. A second one is around kind of co-design. So, for example, we've had examples where we're working with transformer manufacturers to think about how can we reduce... Um, the losses and make transformers, you know, big bits of kit that we buy more energy efficient. Right? And what can we input into that from our engineering? Experience? Yeah, because you're the end customer, I assume. That's the whole point, isn't spot it? Spot on, yeah. spot on. Exactly. Just like what we want to deliver, what our customers mm. want. Our supply chain wants to deliver what we want as their customers. Another example is SF6. You know, there's been a lot of uh, kind of press about SF6 and, uh, you know, how can we try to design it out? You know, we're doing innovation projects with our supply chain to test. Uh, you know, uh, equipment that no longer uses SF6, right? And if that works and it can be um, effectively produced at scale, then there's no reason why we can't accommodate and incorporate those types of new equipment into our next business plan. I mean, that's exactly what we need to do. You know, we cannot work in isolation here. We have to have our face to the market and continue mm -hmm. to ask questions and continue to drive the agenda here because I think we'll get some really good solutions as we've already demonstrated. Let's move on towards the end of this interview, and this is really about the future. So mm -hmm. what are the challenges you can see coming up in the next decade? You know, we've already seen, you know, 10 years ago, one or two electric cars. You know, hardly anyone had solar panels. You know, the, the whole decentralization of energy is rocketing up, and the, the next big one might be heat. So my gas boiler could soon be gone within three to five years. It may even be outlawed by the government. You know, we don't know what legislation drivers. Mm -hmm. You're working on a plan. Can you explain a little bit about that plan and what you see as the major big challenges facing your organization? No, sure, no problem. I mean, look, today, excuse me, today a lot of our discussion has been focused on what we're doing to transform our own operations. Right. If we go back to the start of the interview, I talked about distribution companies having two roles, and that second role very much is about facilitating the wider economy to decarbonize. So I think you're right. If you look at what are the key drivers of decarbonization of wider economy, electrification of transport, electrification of heat, and electrification of, of effectively remaining power, i.e. to be renewable. Mm -hmm. So on EVs today, you're right. You know, we've got over 200,000 electric vehicles in the UK, a third of which are operating in our patch. We reckon by 2030, that could be up to 4 million uh, EVs just in our networks, our regions alone, which is the east of England, London, and the southeast. So we've got to make sure that we're ready for that. And how do we go about doing that? Well, I think we right, can, can take... Start, okay, 4 million EVs, if, if that is the case. What sort yeah. of power drain is that the equivalent to? Like, I don't know, 100,000? I mean, basically, you could... 
Yeah, I mean, you, you know, we have, you know, we always say that we have 8.3 million homes and businesses in our patch. You know, 4 million EVs could easily make that equivalent to 12 million. So 50% wow. increase. Yeah, in terms wow. of power needs. You know, if you think about, you know, a vehicle that has a seven kilowatt charger, if you're charging from home, seven kilowatt chargers, one and a half homes worth of capacity effectively being used at peak. So, you know, there is a, um, a challenge here, but I think it's one that we are really well equipped to tackle. We just need to work um, diligently uh, and in collaboration with wider, the wider community, wider local authorities, stakeholders. So as they come up with their climate emergency plans, we can understand how the distribution network needs to evolve and need to adapt uh, to enable them to meet their plans. So some practical things that we're doing, for example, on electric yeah. vehicles, we know, for example, that, um, that if we're going to form in electric vehicles, we need to address some key issues. We need to address issues around public charging infrastructure. We need to address issues around how we can coordinate the planning of that infrastructure to deliver at least cost. Uh, and then we also need to address um, you know, wider issues uh, in terms of how we think people will use charging infrastructure. You know, will people charge at home where they can? Will they charge on the street? So we're mm -hmm. looking at a number of experiments, um, trials to get a better view on some of the social science behind this around consumer preference, but also do some practical things about putting in place, um, you know, planning with local authorities such that we can come up with an efficient plan that helps them meet their kind of climate, climate emergency. Aren't you stuck in the, between a sort of rock and a hard place? Because, you know, I could blame you. I could say, well, I want to charge outside my house. Is that your job to put that charging point in? Or is it my local council to say, we're going to allow it? And also, where do you build this? Do you just go, we're going to build them in every street? I mean, that would be billions and billions. Mm -hmm. Or do you go, we're going to try and target certain areas where we think they might be more popular or just build them in shopping centres? All of these questions, how are you trying to... You're in a bit of a tricky place to try and work this out, aren't you? Look, it's um, no, no question that there is a challenge ahead of us, right? But I think as network companies, what is our role? Now, our role is to make sure that if people want to connect chargers right, to the network, that there is capacity available for people to connect quickly and as cheaply as possible. That's our role. So we are not owning or operating or installing charge points. We, we, know, we effectively need to ensure that they have a safe, resilient, secure network that's available to connect this infrastructure. So mm. therefore... You know, we're working very closely with local authorities, with charge point providers, such that when they come up with their plans of what they want to implement, we are ready to respond and to build a guide and say, this is where capacity is available. This is where uh, effectively you may need to pay uh, and therefore to signpost uh, and make it clear for the market uh, you know, where it's possible to connect and where traditional uh, you know, connection investment may be needed. So that's the role that we're playing. We want to make sure the network is not a blocker that people could connect cheaply and they can connect quickly. That's basically what we're looking to achieve. Before we end technology, right? Well, obviously, <laughs> I mean, just go back 2007, the first yeah. iPhone, right? And look at what we use our phones for now. Mm -hmm. No one was streaming television. So the, 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 the internet network now has to cope with live video. Mm -hmm. coming in. We're talking now using, you know, I'm at home and I'm using the internet to, to create mm -hmm. TV. Mm -hmm. Where do you see your, um, your biggest sort of, um, if you, I'm not trying to predict, but you know, where can you see the, the technology causing you either more concern or, or showing you, you know, the, the need that you might have to build in more capacity? Because as we demand more energy, 
mm-hmm. we need you guys to provide us those those cables, don't we? Yeah, no, we do. And, and I think the approach that we're taking at UK Power Networks is not to default to just building infrastructure because there are alternative solutions that allow us to build capacity virtually. So in the past, you know, we always say copper was a precious material. I think going forward, data is going to be the precious material because you combine data with sensors, technology and consumer propositions. And that therefore can potentially provide you virtual capacity, what we call a virtual power plant. So we're doing trials with uh, kind of leading edge retailers, whereby we're effectively giving a price signal of where if customers could uh, moderate their charging behavior without any impact on their ability to use their vehicle, i.e. by shifting charging from peak times to off peak times, which has no degradation in in, in terms of their journeys because no one's traveling at two o'clock in the morning. Could we therefore avoid reinforcing because you're shifting the peak, right? And could customers be rewarded for that in terms of customer propositions, you know, reduction in their energy bills or vouchers or whatever. So we're doing a number of trials, experiments with energy, energy retailers to see how can we engage with customers to try and avoid that investment taking place because it should be cheaper. So what we want to try and do is to eke out as much capacity as we can from the existing infrastructure so that we keep bills as low as possible. And then only when we cannot do any more do yeah. we put new infrastructure in place because right. we have an obligation to keep you know, bills as low as possible for customers in this transition. And I don't think any network operator uh, can go out there and say they just want to go and build assets. No. I don't think that's the right approach. I, don't, I think, actually, I'd go as far as to say that's a dumb approach. We need to use technology, data, partnerships to come up with new ways of solving old problems, right? And only when those are fully exhausted do you then go and put in uh, kind of new, new infrastructure. Okay. You're, you're, you're a man with a big intellect, so I know this. So I'm going to ask you to I'll look stop. The flash will get you everywhere. <laughs> I want you to predict, what is London going to be like in 2030? Well, how do you see, what, you know, in your plans, what do you envision uh, the way we're getting around, the way we heat? What, what sort of things do you think we might be doing? Oh, I think by 2030, well, that's what, uh, 10 years from where we are today, I think we'll see a couple of million electric vehicles. That will be the default. Um, vehicle choice for the vast majority of us. Uh, I would see, um, you know, public transport buses effectively being fully electric uh, by then. We're already seeing it today. Um, I would see new build uh, developments um, effectively moving away from gas and actually being uh, a kind of fully electric. I would see some deployment of heat networks, mm-hmm. particularly in London where there's some urban density. Um, and I think the way in which we think about electricity uh, will be different in 2030. So today, you know, not many people understand kilowatt hours or kilowatts. No. They don't, right? And that's the reason why, you know, so many people don't switch even though they can save so much money. But I think as soon as people start to have an electric vehicle in their driveway, they'll start to think about the energy in a different way. And if suppliers, retailers effectively could start to come up with really compelling propositions, customers, I think, will engage their energy use in a different way. They'll become more heightened and more aware of energy efficiency because your vehicle is outside charging, you can see it on your app. I've certainly had that experience. You know, I bought an electric vehicle uh, last year on a lease and it certainly changed my perception of my energy use and made me more aware of it. And I actually work in the electricity sector. So I think, I think the EVs could be that tipping point, that game changer where we think about and, and engage on uh, energy use in a different way. And finally, obviously, you know, you've got kids, I've got kids. The new generation, the new Londoners, the new people in the southeast who, who are being born and raised now in this environment of the environmental consciousness, 
those consumers will want more, won't they, in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I think they're more informed uh, and they have greater expectations uh, about the environment. My children, you know, are talking to me about, you know, turning their taps off when they're brushing their teeth. They're just more wider. Uh, yeah. There's much more wider awareness of sustainability because it's being taught in schools. So I think, well, what does that mean for us as an organization? It means the employees that we're going to be bringing in in the future are going to be more aware of sustainability issues. So if you as an organization or as an employer is working on arcane practices that are not, are not you know, friendly to the environment, you're not going to attract the best talent, right? That's it, full stop. So you, you as an organization, we as organizations have to adapt to be able to attract the best because the best will have ex different expectations of what a good employer is than say necessarily what we've had you know, five, 10 years ago. The second point for me is, you know, as, as these um, youngsters become uh, adults, start buying vehicles, start potentially not even buying vehicles, but, you know, yeah. using Uber, you know, our yeah, view. Of how, cars, who knows? Yeah, exactly. And therefore the view of how the network will be used will, will adapt. And we've got to make sure that we're lit, we continue to listen. And, and that's what we're doing. We actually, as part of our uh, work this year, we're putting in, uh, we're putting in place research with different uh, kind of young consumers to look at their preferences and how they're going to evolve. And it's not about doing it once, it's about repeating it over time, because then you can start to build a really good understanding or knowledge of what kind of future priorities could be and how you adapt your business to make sure you, you remain re relevant. That's the key thing. You know, if networks do not respond, if networks do not adapt and do not start thinking in different ways, as opposed to just let's put copper in the ground, let's start to think about data and technology, as opposed to just think about physical infrastructure, let's think about virtual infrastructure, Let's think about how we can have partnerships with uh, leading progressive organizations to, to effectively reach out to consumers that we've never had to reach out to before. If networks don't do that, they will not be relevant in a digital and decentralized world. They just won't be. And that's why we need to act now. So, Wally, thank you very much for your time. Oh, brilliant. Thank you for your time as well. You have been listening to a promoted podcast from Future Net Zero. Please follow us on social media and subscribe to the website at www.futurenetzero.com. Future Net Zero. Better business, better planet.